0: Please join me in John chapter 13 and we're going to begin a new series of messages in the upper room with Jesus. If you knew you only had 24 hours to live, what would you do? You still had your health. You still had your mind. You had your full mobility. You could do anything, but you knew it was all going to be over in less than 24 hours. What do you think you would do? Maybe somebody would say, look, I just want to make one more trip to the beach. I love the ocean. Let me just go down the beach in the two hour trip there or whatever. Some people might say, I don't know about that, but I would want to eat my favorite food one more time. Maybe somebody would do that. But I think most of us would do this. We'd go home and we would gather with our family members and our closest friends and just spend some more time together before that difficult goodbye would take place. Well, we're beginning a series of messages here in the upper room with Jesus, and we're going to see what he did with less than 24 hours to live. And we're going to find that he did not go to the sea one more time. He didn't even have a special food in mind. There was a last meal, but it wasn't about the food. It was Jesus with his 12 disciples, five hours he's going to spend with them in the upper room because the next morning by 9 a.m. He's going to be hanging on a cross for the sins of the world. But what did he do the night before? He gathered with the 12 in a borrowed upper room for the purpose of preparing them for the chaos and the agony they were about to witness and experience. He was going to prepare them with some things he's going to show them as things he's going to teach them that they might be ready for the crucifixion, ready for the resurrection and ready for the mission that they were to carry out until God called them home. What's so significant about this upper room discourse that we call it is how much scripture is devoted to this. So we have five chapters of the gospel of John devoted to these five hours of Jesus with his disciples. That that is significant, isn't it? In fact, we have more scripture devoted in John's gospel to the upper room, what happened there, than even the crucifixion and resurrection. This doesn't mean it's more important than the crucifixion and resurrection, but just making the point that God has a lot to say to us. This was preserved for a reason for us. So we should lean in when we consider how much God has given us in the word about the five hours there. So because the apostle John was in the room when it all happened, and because the Holy Spirit brought all these things to his remembrance as he wrote these down, we get to be in the room. We get to feel what it was like. We get to know Jesus more deeply. We get to act on what Jesus teaches here. So this is my prayer as we enter into this series, that each of us would go deeper with Christ as we entered the upper room with him. In fact, would you make that your prayer right now? You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to bow your head, but right now, as we get ready to read the word, would you ask him, Lord, would you help me to go deeper with you than ever before in my life over these next several Sundays as we walk with you in the upper room? That'd be a great thing to do, right? Right at the beginning, Lord, would you, would you draw me closer? Lord, would you cause me to love you more in response to what's recorded here from John 13 through 17? Let's dive into the word of God. John 13 verses one through five. Now, before the feast of the Passover... He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So here, as we read what happened in these five hours, John comes out and tells us that really the setting of all this is the Passover meal. So in the upper room, what happened? They ate a Passover meal together. That's the occasion. Jesus wanted to gather with his disciples for the special observance of the Passover. I want you to see with me that everything about the timing of this is significant. Just like everything in the life of Jesus was always with a keen sense of timing and purpose here. We're told in this text that Jesus knew that his hour had come. See it again. Verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the father, see his sense of timing. See his sense of purpose. Every moment in Jesus' life, he was aware of the father's plan. And also he was aware that he in every act was fulfilling the scriptures that were all about him. Here's one example where ahead of time, Jesus lets him know, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die for you there. This is Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus taught them elsewhere in Luke 24 how all the scriptures were about him. Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We're told specifically here in our text, in John 13, that Jesus knew three things clearly. He knew that the time of his death was at hand. Verse three, we're told that he knew all things belonged to him. And in verse 11, which we're going to read in a moment, he knew that Judas would be betraying him that very night. So everything was known to Jesus. He's not being caught off by anything that's going to transpire that night in the upper room, or when they go to the garden and he's betrayed and arrested. He knew all about that. He knew about the, the false trial that he would go through and the accusations. And he knew that by 9am he'd be hanging on a cross for us. The plan was going exactly as the father had ordained. And so the timing of the Passover is also very clear. That's not coincidental. It wasn't like it just happened to be around the time of the Passover, the death of Jesus by the design of God corresponded with the Passover. Let's talk about why that would be. Maybe, you know, about the original Passover. Some of you are new to the church and we're so glad you're here. So let's just remind ourselves together. What is this talk of a Passover? What is that? Well, this comes from the old covenant. This comes from Exodus chapter 12. The people of God, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And finally, in God's timing, he was going to deliver them through the prophet Moses. And so Moses went to the Pharaoh, the king, the leader of Egypt said, let, let God's people go. And he would not do it. He kept refusing to let God's people go. So God began to bring a series of judgments on Egypt, these nine plagues, then culminating in a 10th one. The 10th one was a big one. This was going to be the most severe of all. This would be a plague of death on the firstborn of every household in Egypt, including Pharaoh's house. And so when we think about the Passover, what was it? It was a judgment on the enemies of God, but it was also salvation because here's what God said. I want to spare you this judgment. And here's how you're going to be spared this death plague. I'm going to bring over all of Egypt. You're going to sacrifice a lamb and you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to put some blood on the doorposts of your houses and on the lintel above and when I see that blood, I'm going to pass over you. Judgment's going to fall on all the Egyptian households, but not on yours because of the blood. Here's how God described it in Exodus twelve twelve. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord through your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Everything about that first Passover was messianic. Everything about that was pointing head to this time When Jesus would be dying on a cross for the sins of the world, all of it there, that blood of the lamb was signaling ahead. They're becoming one who would be, as John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that Passover lamb. It's not coincidental that all this is happening at the time of the Passover. In just a matter of hours after leaving that upper room, By nine in the morning, Jesus is going to be dying, giving his blood so that God's wrath could pass over everyone who believes in him. The time had come. Indeed, Jesus had loved his disciples and he's going to love them to the end, giving his all. Let's pause right here. This is enough already to respond to. Understand that Jesus did this for you, that Jesus made it possible for you not to be condemned, for you not to be judged. Jesus gave his blood for you like that original lamb sacrifice there at the original Passover. Jesus is that one. If you have trusted in Jesus, you won't be condemned, but you'll have eternal life instead. But you need to respond to his love. He loved you to the end. Have you responded to his love? Today would be a perfect time for you to accept the love of Jesus and not reject it any longer. We just think about Jesus being the treasure. Is that true of you? Yes, he is my greatest treasure. My hope is only in him. Would you accept his sacrifice for you? Would you ask him even now, Jesus, would you save me? I need you to save me. So in the upper room, they ate a Passover meal together that pointed to the cross that was about to take place. But also in the upper room, Jesus washed his disciples feet. If you've grown up in church, you've been here for many years, you, you almost think yeah, that's obviously yeah, he did. If you're new to church, you hear that and go, that sounds weird. Why would somebody wash somebody else's feet? Well, let's remind ourselves what that was about. That was not a religious custom. There's nothing about that that was spiritual or religious. It was just a very practical need in that part of the world to have your feet washed regularly. This made more sense to me when Joy and I and our, our one daughter at the time, when we lived in Central Asia... Uh, many years ago now, and you walk down dirty streets constantly. Streets are dusty, dirty, and if there's any rain at all, then muddy. And your shoes are always dirty. If you're wearing sandals, your feet are sweaty and dirty at the same time. And so they didn't have a foot washing custom in that culture we served, but you certainly have the custom where you dare not wear your feet or your shoes into the house. Everybody takes off their shoes to go in. So you did that. You also were keenly aware of the condition of your socks when you left in the morning because you knew you couldn't wear the socks with a hole in the bottom because when you get to somebody's house, that's all going to be revealed. You knew if you were wearing sandals and we did that, I kind of interchanged them uh, shoes and then sometimes sandals. But when I wore sandals, the feet would get sweaty and more dirt would be on them. And then you're going into somebody's house. But in Jesus's time, there was a foot washing custom. That it was part of good hospitality at a minimum to provide water for you to wash your own feet. If the family had some means and they had a person working for them, a servant, that servant would have the task as a part of hospitality to wash everybody's dirty feet from those roads. Think about how essential that was. They didn't have table and chairs where they ate. That wasn't the custom. They sat on the floor and everybody's face is close to everybody else's feet when you're eating food. This is not, this is not some religious thing that was started. This is just practical taking care of a need here. So now we come to the question, who's going to wash the feet in this borrowed upstairs room where they're meeting. It's just Jesus and his 12 disciples there. Who's going to do this very necessary task that's just part of the culture there? Well, clearly none of the disciples stepped up to do the task. This is a menial task. This is kind of an unpleasant task. But it's This is striking. Think of it with me. You know, the story, many of you, but hear it again. Jesus did it. Who's Jesus? He's, he's the Messiah. We sang about the holiness of God and how worthy he is. This is the one who knelt down and washed his disciples. feet. This is God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. And he takes on this filthy task of washing their feet notice verse three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Think of it. When Jesus got down there to wash feet, it wasn't like he forgot who he was and took on the menial task. We're told here before he even does it, he knows exactly who he is. He knows his greatness. He knows his authority. He knows he's about to take back his throne. And here with that fully in his mind, Verse four, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Two important lessons from what Jesus did here in the upper room. First of all, a lesson in humility, a lesson in humility, a lesson that we always need to be reminded of, but the disciples needed to be reminded of it as well. In Luke's account of the upper room, we're told this in Luke twenty-two, twenty-four, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. That's embarrassing. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves." For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. Jesus knew who he was. He is the leader, the leader of all leaders, the king of all kings. And he is serving yet again, and this time washing the disciples' feet. Here's a reminder for you and me. We don't have to be nervous about serving other people in maybe even menial tasks for fear that somebody's going to think less of us. Let me ask, did Jesus become less when he got down there and washed disciples' feet? Did he somehow lose his deity by doing that? No. No, it was serving from his position of awesome strength and authority. Also, as we think about this foot washing, some churches have made it into a spiritual exercise. So some churches have made it into an ordinance. So we just had baptism. That's one of our ordinances, we call it. The Lord's Supper is the other one. We say these are the two biblical ordinances, but some have made foot washing one of them that they feel like they, I think they misinterpret what Jesus said about what you do about this. And they've incorporated that into worship. I think free will Baptists are one of those groups that they make it a regular part of their worship to actually literally wash each other's feet. But I don't think that's the point here, but the point is that we are to be humble and we are to serve one another. And we need these types of reminders because isn't it true that many people, when they get into leadership roles, they lose humility. They begin to think that they're more important than other people. They begin to think if they're in a leadership role, that certain tasks are now beneath them going to leave those tasks to other people. You ever met somebody in leadership where they act like the rules no longer apply to me. They apply to you, but I'm a leader. They don't apply to me. So those who lead can lead from a place of arrogance and even greed. Some people, they get so successful and they're in these leadership roles, maybe with some wealth, they don't even want to mingle with common people anymore. So some people with means can say, I'm not even going to fly on the same planes with the rest of you people. I'm going to buy my own plane. So I don't have to be with you. And I won't eat in a regular restaurant with you. I'm going to seek out a private dining room. And if I go to an athletic event, I'm not going to sit in the bleachers. I'm not going to sit in the scenes. I'm going to get a luxury skybox because I don't even want to be around the average people. And then in some, even in so-called Christian circles and so-called Christian leaders who've tried the same moves, I'm going to get my own private jet to try to justify the millions of dollars to fly me around because I can't be with everybody else. And I want a special parking spot for myself at the church. And there are some ministry locations, things. I'm just beyond that now. But here's Jesus, God in the flesh, in a room with 12 of his men, his disciples, and he rises to wash their dirty feet. God Almighty, Emmanuel, God with us. Think about it. this is really not that new because Jesus did everything with his disciples. He ate what they ate. He didn't, he didn't set himself apart from them. He slept where they slept. He traveled like they traveled. It's only one occasion I can think of where Jesus had a different mode of transportation than, than his disciples. And that was the triumphal entry when he comes in on the donkey and they're singing praises to him. But otherwise he's walking with them in the same way. So you and I are to treat each other this way. In fact, this is the express teaching of Jesus here. You say, why the washing of feet? What's that about? Well, we're to be imitating Jesus in this. Look at verse 14. Jesus said, if I then your Lord... And teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus said, I've washed your feet. You need to do this for other people. I don't think he's saying that literally you got to come up with this and do it as some kind of religious thing. But he is saying you should serve other people like I've just demonstrated. I've just done something practical that you needed doing. Now go serve people in the same way. So let me ask you, do you do this? The Lord said, if you know this, you're blessed if you actually do this. If you know this, you're blessed if you actually lead that type of life where you step towards serving other people rather than having the mindset, well, I live for people to serve me. I try to avoid serving others. I serve as little as I can, but Jesus said, no, you you need to do what I have done. You're blessed if you do this. So how are you washing others people, other people's feet in your life? How are you doing that? So I've had a a weak head start on you with this text, meditating on it. And I can't get up here and preach about serving and washing other people's feet unless I'm doing this. And the first place you do this is at home. So I've thought about moments where a dishwasher's full. Somebody needs to unload it. I don't know why I don't want to I don't like to unload the dishwasher. I remember time we didn't have a dishwasher. It was a big deal to have one. Never thought I'd be so wimpy that unloading a dishwasher be like, man, I don't want to do it. But I know Joy doesn't enjoy it either. So I've been able to go, you know I'm going to do this. (laughs) I'm going to put this into practice here. They may be showing up in other ways. You know, let me, let me do the dishes or let me, let me deal with the pets. Cause these tasks that nobody wants to do, let me do the laundry, whatever. Want to, want to humble myself and serve. And so in your house, are you doing that? Are you one who's known for stepping toward acts of service? What Jesus said, you're going to be like me. You know, be willing to wash other people's feet. How about at work? There are tasks that maybe nobody wants to do. And I know you don't want to be taking advantage of at work and your boss to, do that to you. I know you got to be somewhat guarded, but but are you one who's inclined to I'm not too good for that task? I can, I can, I know who I am. I can I can do that. But how about at church? Do you wash one another's feet at church in the way you serve in the body? Let me give you an example. This is 11 o'clock service, and down the hall, somebody is in the nursery. What happens in a nursery? They're not washing feet in there, but they're diapers that need to be changed. There's some hero in there right now, and your cute child or grandchild is filling up a diaper, and, and they're going to they're gonna do a very unpleasant unpleasant task, putting this into practice, just, just going to love, so that you can worship, or somebody can be in a life group, they're going to serve like that. But think about it, even if you're not in the nursery, isn't it, isn't it washing one another's feet for some other children's worker to, to be preparing all week? To teach little children who are wiggly and cute, but to to point them to Jesus, even though some of them are going to know these kids aren't even going to remember me. They won't even know my name, but I'm investing in them as a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old. But isn't that washing somebody's feet? Think about those who work with students. Right now, our students are downstairs. Is there a more challenging ministry in all the church than student ministry? Student ministry is the group in church where you've got people there who want to be there. And you got a lot of students who don't want to be there. I thank God for parents who make their kids come to church because this is what we do. I make you go to school. I make you go to the doctor. We need it. And of course, we're going to be here learning about Jesus. I, I can't make you love him, but, but we're going to do this. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But that makes a challenge for the student workers because they got people down there who don't know Jesus, don't want to know Jesus. And they're in the mix and they're trying to hold their attention and teach the ones who are willing. Man, but that's, that's washing people's feet to take on that assignment. Thank God for those who do that and the good things God's doing. And how about even serving other adults? Teaching adults isn't easy. You've got a, a room full of people who might know a lot about the Bible and you've got a person who's been preparing all week to serve his brothers and sisters by teaching in a life group. We have people serving like this and it's wonderful in so many other ways. Jesus modeled this type of humility and service. Philippians 2, 5, have this bind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Listen, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus's washing feet is a lesson in humility, but also this, it's a lesson about his upcoming crucifixion. Clear lesson on humility. Jesus says, this is the point of it but also he teaches something else. And we pick it up in the interchange between Peter and Jesus about the foot washing. So certainly the Passover points to the cross that's about to come, but even the washing of feet, that picture of cleansing also is pointing ahead to the cross. It's just merely hours from this point. Here's the idea. Jesus is the servant That servant we read about in Isaiah 53, that one we call the suffering servant, who's going to give himself to take away the sins of the world, who will take the sins of the world upon himself, that he can atone for them. Can you think of a more unpleasant task than that? Washing feet, unpleasant, but to take the filth of the world upon yourself and to die for the sins of the world, nothing more unpleasant than that. And that's what Jesus is doing to cleanse us from sin. Listen to this interchange between Peter and Jesus about Jesus washing Peter's feet. Verse six. Jesus said to him, the one who was bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. I love Peter's shock here when Jesus came to his dirty feet and he, he responded, I think correctly. If Jesus were here bodily this morning and moved toward your feet to wash your feet, you'd protest like this. No, no, you are the Lord. You are the savior. I, I, you, you can't do that to me. Peter was correct in his shock that his Lord would stoop to this menial task. But then did you notice he flipped to saying, okay, not just my feet, everything about me. When Jesus said, you'll have no part of me unless you let me cleanse you. He's like, okay, head to toe. I want you I, anything it takes Lord to be with you. I just love Peter's response there. Jesus here is picturing this. He's pointing out that I've already cleansed you, Peter. You don't need to head the toe. He's using this symbolically. He's just saying, because of your faith in me, Peter, I've already cleansed you. You don't need a bath all over again. You just need this. And I think it's a picture of this. When you and I put our faith in Jesus, our sins are indeed washed away. Isn't Isn't this wonderful? We're declared righteous in the sight of God by faith in Jesus. It's not by our works. It's what he accomplished for us. That's made us clean. That is the bath. But then what do we do as Christians? Even as believers, we sin. And when we sin, what do we do? We don't have to get sent, we don't have to get saved all over again. You know there's no such thing as getting saved again. Sometimes you hear somebody with an unclear testimony, "Well, I got saved when I was then, then I got saved again, then I got saved. No. Listen, if you had to get saved every time you sinned, we'd be getting saved 30, 40 times a day sometimes and every year, and getting baptized over and over again. No, we don't need that again. You trust in Jesus. He has cleansed you. You stand righteous in the sight of God. It's amazing, amazing mercy and grace, amazing salvation. But still, when we sin, it's not okay. So what we do there is we confess, Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I need you to cleanse me of what I've just done. I'm already clean, but at the same time, I need to be clean. That's what he said. You've already had a bath. Your feet got dirty. Let's wash your feet. Here's how the scripture describes it practically for us. First John one, eight and nine. If we say, he's talking to Christians, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we mess up, when we sin, when we're willfully sinning and we come to Lord saying, Lord, I was so foolish. That was I did that. I did that sin with my eyes wide open. That was an accident. I am sorry. I agree with you, God, about what I just did. That was wrong. Would you forgive me? And here's the promise I God. I'll forgive you. Not getting saved over again, but you've been cleansed. You've been restored. You've been refreshed. Aren't you grateful for a savior so merciful that he keeps forgiving you? He holds on to you. You don't lose your salvation when you truly know him. But here's the question this morning before we go. Do you know Jesus? Have you allowed Jesus to cleanse you of your sin? It's amazing that there's one who can do this. Symbolize in the washing of feet. Oh, but we know the cross is coming. And it's Jesus on the cross who can wash you clean. Do you see the love of Jesus that he was willing to do that for his disciples and is willing to do that for you? He loved you to the end. But today's a day where you need to respond to his love, where you would love him in return for the first time in your life, perhaps where you recognize, oh, I really can't save myself. And it's only Jesus who can. I need to respond to his gracious offer. He was willing to die for me and all my sin. How could I not give him my life? How could I not follow him? Why would I be resisting him today? Would you come to your senses and believe in Jesus Christ, turn from sin, turn from all sin and trust in Jesus, but it's going to take humility to do it. And it may be pride that keeps you out of the family of God. I pray that you'll humble yourself and trust in him. Many years ago now, I remember going to restaurants with my grandparents. And one of our favorite places to go after they retired was a place called Jay's Seafood outside of Albemarle, North Carolina. Many wonderful memories there. And uh, there are a lot of occasions when my uncle would be there, my grandfather's youngest brother. And so when those two men were there and the bill would come, these men would fight over who was going to pay the bill. I always thought that was comical because I'm a kid. I'm grateful for the free meal. I'm there. I have no money. I can't contribute. So I just watch the men go at it. No, I've got it. Sometimes they try to get to the server ahead of time. The bill comes to me. That would start the fight before the meal. If my father happened to be there, then there'd be three men arguing over who's going to pay the bill. But my dad confessed to me years later about moments like that, that he had no business asking for the ticket for the bill because he didn't have the money on many occasions to do it. So my grandfather had the money to cover 10 people around the table, 12, however many of the My uncle was doing all right. He could do it. But my dad, it was just pride. I got to act like I can do it. I want to be seen as the big spender. I want to cover it. And so if my dad had done it during certain times of his career, it would have gone on a credit card and stayed on the credit card for quite a long time. But it feels good, doesn't it? When you say, I'm not in need. When you don't have to admit your need, you just act like, I got this. And in fact, I got this so well, I could cover all of you. But coming to Jesus is different than that. Coming to Jesus as you recognize, I'm at the table and I've got nothing to offer. I cannot afford what's necessary to be saved. I I cannot afford the entrance into heaven. I don't have what it takes. It's very different than acting like you have it together. And that's your move today. If God could humble himself and wash feet, if he could humble himself and go to a cross, can't you humble yourself to admit, I needed him to do that for me. I need the cleansing that only he can give. I need that precious blood that he spilt for me. That's the only way I could ever be clean. The only way I could be saved. So today, would you do that? Respond to the love of God today by confessing your need for Jesus to be your savior and ask him, Jesus, save me. I'm gonna humble myself to receive the gift of salvation. I'm gonna humble myself to follow your your leadership for the rest of my life.